Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. One of Felicia's victims, she spoke about the long-term effects that, you know, being a prostitute has had on her. She hasn't had a period in two years. She suffers from extreme anxiety, spends hours in the shower on a regular basis, washing the disgust away. She was being diagnosed with severe pomatic stress. She fears the phone ringing or hearing the knock on the door. Her direct quote was, this experience will always be fresh in my memory. I'm hanging on by a thin thread. It could cut at any time. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. They're the first people in Ireland to be convicted of human trafficking for a prostitution ring. And Alicia Edosa and Edith Ngogazi are now finding out for themselves what it feels like to be trapped after receiving jail terms of over five years. But an extraordinary story lies behind the headlines of a Midland sex ring and the madams who ran it. A story which stretches all the way back to slave markets in Nigeria and the practice of voodoo. Today, I'm talking to journalist Eamon Dillon about the human sex slaves working in Irish prostitution and the profits made from putting them to work. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Eamon, there seems to be a legal difference between human smuggling and human trafficking, which maybe as the general public, we mightn't be that aware of. But there's a significant difference when it comes to the law, isn't there? Yeah, I guess. So people smuggling is where, you know, you're involved in helping people to get to where they want to go. You know, whether you do it for free, you know, whether you charge them a huge amount of money and put them on a boat you know, across the English Channel or, the, you know, they go with you in your car across to England on the ferry and, and you're doing either as a favour for a couple of quid, that's people smuggling. I mean, even even some of these horrific cases where dozens of people have died in the back of trucks, 
to some extent, they weren't being trafficked. I mean, some of them in that truck may have been trafficked, but many of them would have actually paid a fare to be on that. So that makes them, you know, that makes those people, you know, who are organizing that journey, people smugglers, as opposed to traffickers. Traffickers, on the other hand, are people who are coercing people who don't necessarily um, want to go or don't know where they're going or are, are being are being kind of, you know, smuggled in inverted commas under deception. You know, they're, they're being fooled mm. into thinking they're going off to, to get a job in, in a nice shop, whereas, in fact, they're going off to work on a cannabis farm or, you know, work in a nail bar or, or, as in this case, we're going to be talking about working in brothels. So they're kind of either lied to or tricked in some way in order to... Um, to move them from one jurisdiction to another, whereas the smuggled people maybe are willing participants in the in their own transport. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and and you know, to some extent, it would be you know, liking say illegal Irish immigrants who who might resort to flying to Canada with their EU visa and then paying someone to get them a over the US border to back to what they were doing before they had to go home in New York or whatever it is. I mean that that's that's people smuggling as opposed to trafficking. Mm. But the but the point is you don't have to actually cross jurisdiction to be trafficked. And in this case, uh, the trafficking charges relate to what happened within Ireland, where people were being directed to go from one place to another. So they were they were trafficked within Ireland. And this is although we've heard about trafficking and we hear about it all the time, this is the first uh, case that we've had where we've convictions for human trafficking. And two women, Edith Engogazi and Alicia Edosa, uh, have been jailed. So I think you were at that court case and it's a very interesting story behind it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty multifaceted one in that, uh, you know, the, the trafficking of people from this particular part of Nigeria where all the victims came from was a real, it's been a real issue. It turns out all four victims... Uh, in, in this case, were all from Benin City, which had become notorious worldwide as a kind of a hub of of uh, people trafficking. And a lot of their power of the traffickers rested on the fact that uh, people were, you know, made to undergo juju or voodoo rituals before they left, in which they pledged loyalty to, you know, whoever was at the other end who was going to be looking after them, so to speak. And uh, and I, I, you know, and I can't be understated the spiritual power of of, of, of these ceremonies, um, uh, and they were genuinely in fear that they would die, something bad would happen to them, or something terrible would happen to their family as well. I mean, there were some very specific details were given in terms of, you know, if you if you break your oath, your grandmother will go to hell, and you know, and, and they do have a, a serious, you know, a serious hold on people. What age were these girls? Amen. They're, they're all, these are all in their early, mid-20s. They're, you know, 22, 24, 25, 26, around, around that age group. Um, a, lot, a lot of them, basically, they were, they were from poor enough backgrounds. One of them was a phone card seller. You know, she was approached at a junction in, in Benin City. Another girl, another woman was um, a water seller. Uh, now, one of, them, one of them had a horrific story. Like, she had already been, you know, forced into prostitution from the age of 14, and was basically tricked into thinking that she was going to visit her sister who had left some time previously and that there were finally, you know, these friends of hers in inverted commas were going to get her to the UK where her sister was now living. So, you know, they come from, they, basically they're, they're vulnerable women who are targeted by people who know what they're doing and every step of the way somebody's making money off them. I had heard before years ago and um, when we were looking into another case that you and I have both reported on about an Irish 
um, brothel owner who did bring in women from this same area of Nigeria to work here in the sex industry, that they have almost what could be crassly described as a market, a human market. And a lot of the women come in from the countryside. They'd be very, uh, you know, they don't have much education. They don't really have an understanding of what's going on outside their own area. And that this market is often attended by women who are, you know, it's not necessarily men that are the the, the front people to, to make the initial contact with them. So it's women and sometimes it's women they know, women from their village who've been probably trafficked in the same way into Europe, have worked in the prostitution industry and have come out of it as a boss as such. And they go back then and, and bring more of them in. But whether that is the case or not, and there was all sorts of stories about rituals involving chickens and the blood of chickens. And I mean, it does sound scary stuff, but ludicrous maybe to us. Um, but I think to these girls to understand that this is their culture and religion and they believe in this voodoo and they believe in these rituals more than anything else and they're terrified by them. Yeah, and, and like some of the details came out in the victim impact statements. Um, one of them talked about how she still has the scars from the, the voodoo ceremony, you know, at which she, she was cut with razors. Um, another one, uh, one of them, she had to pull out the, the heart of a chicken as part of it. Uh, you know, the things like they had their body hair shaved. Like there's, there's a lot of, you know, from our point of view, very strange sort of, you know, practices going on. Like I, I spoke to Siddharth Kara, who is uh, he's, he's basically a, he's a, a world-renowned uh, researcher into the whole area of human trafficking, and he described you know brothels as where you know the bestiality of trafficking is unleashed. And then he says Nigeria is the most unleashed of them all. Like he, you know he 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 said that this type of trafficking that comes out of of, of Nigeria is very specific. And has actually, you know, capitalized on the power of that spirituality that's turned against people and, you know, basically makes people obey, you know, people who are just out to really exploit them. I, it's interesting enough, it was actually mentioned at the, at, in, in Mullankar's circuit court how the king of Nigeria, as, as it was described in court, had lifted these curses. So all these women had their curses lifted. So I actually had a quick look up on that. And apparently it was the, the king of Oba, a Nigerian king, as opposed to the king of Nigeria, in 2018, they held a special ceremony to lift all curses that had been placed by sex traffickers. And this, this was really, this is coming under, you know, serious political pressure, I think, at the time when, as I said, there was 10,000 women a year being trafficked out of Benin City. And to give, to give the, the curse extra power, they took out a religious icon that hadn't seen daylight in 800 years. So this was, this was considered, you know, uh, it was described as one quote saying it was, it was, it was the, the nuclear bomb of all juju curses in this case. And that he warned that anyone who, who you know, coerces women into sex trade you, using, using these ceremonies will face the wrath of our ancestors. So... I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see if this will have any effect. But I, I imagine it does. Mm. So going back to Mullingar Circuit Court, because we're a long way from Nigeria in Mullingar Circuit Court. So how do these women end up here? And how do these two ladies, Engogazi and Edosa, end up before before the judge, Justice Comerford? I suppose it, it goes back to, I think it's May 2018, when two of the women walked into Store Street Garda Station and basically told their story uh, 
up to that point, they had, I think, spent between six and seven months each uh, working in Ireland. Uh, one of them, you know, found herself, it was a particularly quiet night in Carrick and Shore, where she was now working from and, and was thinking hard about how she was going to get out of this. And she rang, she had made friends with one of the other trafficked women and the two of them decided together they'd travel down to Dublin, which is what they did. And I, I guess it was, uh, you know, there, there wasn't, I don't think, it, it was a slow build-up then in terms of there was, they named the, the people who ended up being prosecuted in, tor- in, in court, um, and, and Doza Ongazi and, her, and her, her husband Desmond as well. And so they, they were, um, th- 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 so their testimonies were in the hands of the guards at this stage. And then a third person's testimony came through the UK authorities where uh, one of the women who'd been trafficked again to Ireland and she'd managed to escape and she was applying for asylum in the UK and was giving her story. So the police, the guards from, from Mullingar at this stage was, had been handed to them, flew over to, to uh, the UK to in- interview her. And then a fourth woman also uh, turned up. Uh, she walked into Dundalk Garda Station. Now, those last two, the woman who walked into Dun- Dundalk Garda Station, she was rescued, so to speak, by a, uh, a friend that she'd made, an Irish friend, and uh, was able to give her a place to live. And she, 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 she'd got out of where she was at the time. I think she was in Letterkenny. And then there was another woman, the, the woman then who ended up getting to her sister in the UK, uh, she'd had a row with uh, one of the traffickers and was crying when a regular customer came in and said he'd help her. And he got her on the ferry to the UK, and she got to, to she got to the, the the part of the southern southern town in the in the UK where her sister was living. And so that's how she made it out. So their journey started sometime around 2016 in Nigerian Benin City. And were the women that were convicted of human trafficking in Mullingar the women who coerced them there, or was there a chain? There was a chain now, but at the same time, the two of the victims were directly spoken to over the phone when they were still in Nigeria by uh, Alicia and vice versa. Then the other two victims were spoken to directly by uh, Engo Gaze uh, and they were, you know, they had different journeys. Like it, it wasn't it wasn't a matter of getting on a, a flight and arriving directly in Dublin. Uh, one of them, I think she 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 was flown to. She was flown to Istanbul and then from Istanbul to Athens and then from Athens to Italy, uh, from there to Lyon, back to Italy and then to Dublin. And, and she, she was met as, you know, and it was all with f- false papers, false passports. And, and, and they, were either, they were met at the airport then by either, by either one of the women. And in, in one case, uh, Enel Gaze turned up uh, to meet one of, the, one of her victims with her husband and their children. Uh, and, and at this stage, the women still like generally thought they had been promised they were going to get a job. One of them was a job in an Afro store in Dublin and that she was going to get, you know, between two and a half thousand, three, you know, three and a half thousand a month working there. Another woman had been promised a job as a nursing care assistant. So like they, they really, they generally thought they were going to be, you know, they were, they were actually getting smuggled into Ireland or whatever but that they were going to, you know, get decent jobs and be able to start sending money back home and had no idea that they were going to be forced into prostitution. And Engogazi and Adosa, the two women who were convicted of human trafficking, are they living here for a long period of time? Are they settled in Ireland for, for years or who are they? Edith Engogazi, like it was interesting like to, to hear her background when it came to the, at the sentencing hearing, that she's here since she was 14, that they know of. Um, and at the age of 16, she was rescued from a house in Sligo where she was at risk of being prostituted. And that was the way it was phrased in court. So 
she has obviously had been pretty much put through the mill, the same mill that she was now putting these women through. Uh, and like she's now age 31. Uh, and at, at, at some point she, she had met Desmond, I think, you know, after her, her, her rescue by the guards from the house in Sligo and had set up, you know, a life in Dublin and then moved to Mullingar where, you know, to all intents and purposes, she was living a normal life. There was reference, character references in court from her local church to say, you know, we never saw the side of her. She was, you know, seemed like a really nice, happy family person who was a valued member of the community, but seemed to be able to run this completely separate sort of side to her life without letting anyone know. And then the, the other woman, Alicia, then um, had, a, had a, a slightly different, a different route as well, that she was prostituted herself from a young age in, in Nigeria and had managed then uh, through meeting a man online. She met, um, I think it was, uh, it was a guy from Eastern Europe that she met online, that she came to Ireland and she married, <clears throat> but the marriage fell apart when she couldn't have children. This is what was mentioned in court. And sometime, uh, not long after that, then to support herself, she herself went into prostitution and, and was working from her apartment in Mullingar. And then obviously was trying to bump up her income by taking part in, you know, I suppose this network that existed where they could bring in women to, you know, to to also join them, so to speak, on the, on the game. And, and, and that's how it happened. So the evidence as such was that these women were lured by these juju rituals and sort of frightened by these juju rituals in Nigeria, or some of them at least. They were told that they'd be sent over to Europe to work in legitimate sort of employment. They certainly weren't told they were coming over to work in prostitution. And that when they got to Ireland, these women were waiting for them to set them to work in the sex trade, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, you know, one woman in her victim impact statement describes how, you know, when she was brought to an Ann's summer shop and they were buying sex toys and, and lingerie that she realised, you know, what she was now expected of her. Uh, and in another case, it was, it was less, um, <clears throat> I suppose it was less subtle and that she was sent, she was sent straight to work, um, you know, with a puncher in Mullingar. And another woman, then her her first her first night in in her first day, I think in in Ireland was down to Killarney, where she was warned that uh, she was reminded that the oath she had taken in the juju ritual would die if she didn't, you know, go through with it. Well, there was no evidence given in court during the trial of physical coercion. It was mentioned during the victim impact statements, but one of Felicia's victims, she spoke about the long-term effects that, you know, being a prostitute has had on her. She hasn't had a period in two years uh, as a result of the physical injury she suffered, and she also has constant abdominal pain. She suffers from extreme anxiety, spends hours in the shower on a regular basis, washing the disgust away. This was all in her victim impact statement. She was being diagnosed with severe traumatic stress. She fears the phone ringing or hearing the knock on the door. And, you know, her direct quote was, this experience will always be fresh in my memory. I'm hanging on by a thin thread. It could cut at any time. There was legal argument over, you know, there was, it was brought up that, you know, well, the judge can't, they can't bring any sentencing in on the basis of that, that it wasn't, mm. it wasn't mentioned during evidence. So the judge was taken very much to what was heard in evidence in, in that regard. But one of the one of the key things I think as well is that by the time they they got to to Ireland, they were told them that they owed money for you know the fare that took them to get there, and it ranged from the lowest to thirty five thousand and the highest was sixty thousand. Now, when I described one of the women, you know, you know, flying through the various European cities and you know through Istanbul, and and two of them had similar journeys, maybe not as many airports, but one of them had had a much tougher journey. She took the overland route which is out through Mali, through, um, you know, the old slave trades. Literally, these were like the old, 
you know, uh, where, where, you know, the slave traders in West Africa, you know, sold people into a life of slavery in, in North Africa. She was, she was, you know, basically held in Libya where she was raped. And then she made that dangerous crossing uh, across the Med before she got to Ireland. So she, she had a different experience in that regard. God, it's, it's unbelievable. And was there um, any evidence given at all to the court that their passports were taken while they were here? Or were they simply held under that fear of that if they didn't earn this money back for their, their smugglers, that they would these curses from Nigeria would be cast upon them or their families? Or was there... So there was no physical force, but were they, were they actually, were their passports taken so they couldn't leave? Or There, there was no evidence about their passports. Um, although, you know, what was heard in some of the victim impact statements was that although there were false passports, there were actually legitimate ones with fake details that one woman talked about going into what appeared to be a government building with the Nigerian flag flying on the top of it and came out with, you know, a Nigerian passport with somebody else's name on it and her, her picture. So, I mean, that's... You know, that's the, kind of the level of the pipeline, I guess, uh, you know, that this Mullingar brothel keepers, you know, were plugged into. But, uh, like, again, there was nothing There was nothing in evidence about the about the physical coercion. It was mentioned in the victim impact statements, which they, they you know, the judge said, look, you'd have to disregard. I mean, you, you can't underestimate the, the power that, you know, the spirit, spirituality. I mean, it's, it's Siv Carrot, like, you know, who I spoke to before, he talked about, you know, when he arrived in to sort of look at this and try and understand it and set out in, in, in Nigeria that, you know, you, you go to a Christian evangelist meeting and, you know, and it, it, it goes on for four hours and it's the temple is building up. And by the end of it, people are speaking in tongues, they're lying on the ground, you know, possessed, you know, by the by the Holy, the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it's a, it's a Christian, you know, it's a, it's a Christian manifestation of that spirituality. And, but the juju priests then, you know, they hold, they hold serious sway in this part of Nigeria. And, and they also make money out of it as well. I mean, they were getting like, you know, $1,000 for carrying out these, these ceremonies for juju. So obviously it was a nice sideline for these guys as well, you know, sending off people to, you know, to be trafficked through Western Europe with the fear of God literally put on them. Now, the money that was obviously made, were these women, was there a network of brothels that they were around or were they expected to just set themselves up in apartments and, and any idea how much money they made, basically, for their traffickers over the time that they were working in brothels? Well, the, the, generally, the estimate that a trafficked sex slave in Western Europe is it's €150,000 a year is what they're worth to traffickers. And... and some of what was mentioned in court would bear that out. It was pretty close. One of the women, she actually was, was quite useful to the investigators that she actually kept records of all the lodgements that she had made from around the country. And, and in those, I think, five months had, had, uh, had lodged 44,000 euro. So that kind of gives you an idea, you know, you, you work it out, it's what, 80 euro or 100 euro a go. So, you know, you know each customer was paying that. So what's that, about 500 men she would have, you know, had sex with, um, or what, I don't know what the, the best way to phrase it is, but that, that was, you know, 500 customers that she had as, uh, as a very reluctant prostitute in that time. So it, it, there, there was no direct kind of figures given on some of the others. I think they weren't really sure. One of them had 120 euros sent to her family twice in that time. Others talked about having no money and actually being hungry. And there were very much, everything was controlled by either Alicia or 
or or Edith. Like it, there was no, they 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 had no freedom in in terms of their own cash or documents or going anywhere. And it took them it took them months and months of being you know stuck in this nightmare before they finally were able to pluck up the courage and and, and you know and walk out. And the other end where that money they earned was being obviously transferred into accounts and stuff. I think Desmond uh, Obasbobo Ngogazi, who was Edith's husband, he was um, acquitted on trafficking charges, but he was convicted of money laundering. So where did that money go? And are we looking at a situation where the likes of the Criminal Assets Bureau might follow the trail? It's, there was no evidence given in court about that, unfortunately. Um, in, like, uh, Ozabovo, Desmond, the husband, his... Like his uh, money laundering charges against him were relatively minor in that there was four occasions where there was an overflow of money from his wife's account into his and it went back into hers. Now, now, it, it, you know, to be honest, like, like I, I, called to, I called to the house where he was living, where himself, Edith, and his three kids and now his mother were living, or they, they still are living there. And I can tell you this, there's no sign of any wealth. Like, they're not... Mm-hmm. Like if 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 they made if you can work out that they possibly made three hundred thousand euro in a couple of months over on these four women and I who's to know that there weren't more like there's no sign of it in in the little terraced house in the middle of Mullingar town where he lives there's no sign of it whatsoever there's no big cars it's, it's not a plush residence you know he's not wearing nice jewellery or anything like mm-hmm. that so you know and I mean as you know he, he's a, he's an interesting character like some of the stuff that came out in court. He was actually in prison on the day that the guards finally raided the two addresses in Mullingar. Um, he had 30 previous convictions, mostly for road traffic, and he was in, he was serving time for, you know, in connection with these road traffic, presumably for not paying the fine or something like that. It was relatively minor. Uh, but it did come out, like, he, he in his mitigation that he lost his thumb when he was shot in the chest and hand when he'd gone home to, to Benin. And I did ask him about that. I said, like, you know, was this shooting anything to do with, you know, what your wife has been convicted for? And, you know, he just totally blanked the question, more or less said, that's got nothing to do with this. So, you know, the, like, it's important to say now, like those 60-something, 64 charges brought against the three people, the jury acquitted them on a number of important ones, including that they were working in concert. There was a charge that they were part of a, nor- a criminal organisation so n- none of them were convicted of that. He, he was charged with controlling prostitution. Um, he was acquitted of that. It's, you know, it's important to mention that. And so very much it was the two women were convicted separately of trafficking two different victims each. So while there was four victims, mm-hmm. each woman trafficked two of them, and that was it. And they weren't seen as acting in concert. And the, the judge actually described it as a cottage industry. And that's why he was able to suggest then that this was at the mid-level of offending it, it wasn't like the worst part, and he suggested that you know people stuffed into the back of a of a, a lorry <clears throat> in dangerous conditions is probably the upper end. And he said, you know, while it was terrible ordeal what these women went through, it's not at that level. I think certainly Edith Ngogazi suggested that, with the boat, by the uh, of course uh, denied all charges put against them, and I think. Edith Ngogazi and possibly Alicia Edosa as well said that these women were lying and that they were using up, making up these stories about juju rituals and stuff in order to um, help them with their uh, residential status here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they both you know um, 
put forward that they'd already knew these women from working through Escorts Ireland, the, the website that we've talked about before yeah. that was set up by convicted pimp Peter McCormack. And, and they said, look, these women were already working here um, and that they didn't, you know, they didn't necessarily, you know, they had not they had nothing to do with, mm-hmm. you know, with this whole story of them, you know, being brought over from Africa and being in contact with them. But it, it was investigated and there was, the phone records were there. Um, I, I think the, the, the money trail to some extent as well, when I say the money trail, the money trail within Ireland as well was pretty damning. So, I, I, like, their excuse that, look, these women are already working as prostitutes and we just happened to know them, uh, like, didn't didn't stand up. I mean, that was, I mean, the jury were obviously quite discerning in that, you know, while they picked some charges and found them guilty and not guilty on others, but they did find the two women guilty of controlling, uh, of of running brothels, uh, of money laundering and of of trafficking. Human trafficking. And they were jailed ultimately for five years, which, um, you know, in Ireland, what will they serve? Three and a half? Yeah, well, it's usually probably around two thirds. So um, whatever that works out. <laughs> I think I got it there. Did I? Three and a half for the first time in my life. I've got a sum right. Yeah, well, the, the judge, I think, confused everyone in court because he, he actually sentenced... Uh, he sentenced Alicia to 68 months and Edith to, to 61 months. So there was a barrister I could see struggling quickly <laughs> trying to write down his his, his uh, 5 by 12 tables. I'd be, I'd be with him. Um, but is that OK? And we're not going to criticise, obviously, any judges um, sentencing or their reasons for it. But are we in this country, shall we talk in general, taking human trafficking? And human smuggling as well. Seriously enough, are we? Are we? Is there enough uh, punishments there to recognise the seriousness of those crimes? I, I, it is there. I mean, you can be you can be sentenced up to life for people trafficking. Um, and that, I think that was pretty much the you know the, the sentencing range was was put out there <clears throat> in court. Now this is legislation that has been there since two thousand and eight, so it's taken a while for us to get to get to this point. And, like, and in, in terms of you're asking, like, you know, are we doing enough? Well, according to the United States, their State Department, we're not. Like, they have a trafficking in persons report, which they, they bring out uh, most years. And we're still a tier two nation. That means, you know, basically we're not doing enough. I know that our, 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 our own government weren't particularly pleased at the most recent iteration of the report that kept us in tier two on the back of this particular case, thinking, oh, look, we have a case. Um, and they're hopeful, or they they're hopeful that we'll go up to tier one on the basis of this conviction. But this conviction, to be honest, I mean, it's, it's very much, you know, the two women were undoubtedly victims themselves at some point. Now, you, you can say that makes their crime worse because they know and should understand better than anyone what they were putting their victims through. But at the same time, they're obviously not the, the, they're not the top end of, of the network or the organisation uh, and you, you know, you know the, the fact that people are still able to operate. Um, you know, the, this this sort of you know sex trafficking. The fact that it's still possible to advertise. You know, these women, and that was the point. Um, France, Judge Francis Comerford made. <clears throat> he said it was ridiculously easy that there was no legislation and no regulation of the the likes of Escorts Ireland. That it just it, it makes it so easy for people who do not want to be you know forced into the sex trade to have them advertised in this way. I mean, when the women talked about you, you know being dressed up in lingerie and being photographed and, and knowing well that these photographs are going to go up online, so even that's the beginning, I guess, of the psychological torture. I mean, it pales in significance, I guess, to to what happens later on. 
But I mean, even the idea that you, you, you know they, these kind of you know sort of intimate pictures of you are going to go online must be you know it must be a horrible thought for anyone to have to kind of you know deal with. So the, the fact that they're still able to operate, I think, was was, was you know was brought it was brought up by the judge. And Peter McCormick has had many decades making money off the back of women in the sex trade. I mean, he is somebody who is just around for ages. And as you say, no legislation in place. He's still able to make a fortune. He's making millions out of this Escort Ireland website. Yeah, I mean, it's effectively the only, like until recently, it's been really the only online advertising. It's certainly the most successful. Uh, I mean, we've gone through this before. I mean, like like we placed ads, did a fake you know, uh, set up a, a you know a fake profile just to see, you know, uh, to see what was going on. There's no safety checks. You know, you could be anyone. They just wanted the money. They only do a couple of safety checks a couple of days afterwards. And when I say safety checks, I think they're more worried in case it's the Sunday World or the guards setting up a fake brothel, and that's about it. So the safety checks are from from their their end. So I mean, they're making about at least twenty million a year. I think was the figure that we you know we've come up with before. Uh, and it's just you know there, there's what over five hundred I think today advertised. And you can be guaranteed that, you know, probably 10% or thereabouts or even more are women like the four that we've been talking about, that they've been, you know, hoodwinked, they've been tricked. You know, you have your, you know, your Romanian gangs that kind of, that, that you know, rely on the lover boy approach that, you know, some of these girls are brought over again from vulnerable, poor backgrounds. They think this this fella is, there, is you know, the greatest things in sliced bread and he's going to look after him. You just have to do this for a little while and, you know, we get married and have a lovely life together. And, I mean, they're effectively brainwashed. As, you know, they're just, it is coercive control. And, you know, and we, we could be forever, like, you know, doing whack-a-mole, the guards, you know, in terms of trying to, you know, stop, you know, these gangs operating. But, you know, as Judge Comerford said, it's just ridiculously easy. I mean, it's illegal to advertise prostitution services in Ireland, but obviously it's not in Spain where, you know, you know the, the company that runs the website that advertises are based. So, you know, until, until we can get to grips with that or there's some kind of European-wise kind of approach to this, it's, it's going to be difficult, I think. You know, it's wishful thinking on the part of the judge that, you know, we, we can suddenly legislate and... And, and, and stop or shut this shut this down and where is McCormick now I'd love to know if anyone wants to let mm. us know where they say yeah, don't give like, us a ring great yeah well maybe somebody will who knows last seen where well the, the last time we, we had any kind of idea like there was different addresses in the UK he, he was registered to companies now he's taken himself off as a director his former partner uh, I think her son is one of the directors now um, I mean, we can't be for sure. I mean, who knows? He might have sold off his interest, but he did. It was his company when he set it up. Um, and it's hard to believe that he doesn't still have an interest in it. I mean, I'd be highly, you know, I'd be really surprised if he wasn't. I mean, he's just, it's just, you know, it's just a cash cow. I mean, he, look, he's got plenty of money. He can, he can hide wherever he wants, you know, and, and keep well away from the likes of us and our long lenses. And a little bit like the, um, the cocaine industry, at the other end of all of this, you have a, uh, a market for it and people, often well-educated people who know all about this and who are reading up about human trafficking, about smuggling, who are well aware what's in, um, you know, who, who is, is offering this sex for sale service, but yet they'll still use it. Yeah, I, look, I mean, it's, 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 it's not necessarily willful ignorance, but like people just don't, don't believe or don't care that it's going on, that it's... Uh, it, you know, that is too far-fetched. I mean, even, you know, when I 
talk to people outside of the Sunday world about, oh, say, what were you up to this week? And I explain, oh, I was doing a, working on a story. I was up at a trial about sex trafficking. And their, their eyes, they were, they were, what? What are you talking about? And I said, look, I said, what town are you from? And I'll tell them. And I said, look, the chances are there's two or three women in the same boat in your town. And like, you know, they're shocked and amazed for all of 10 seconds. And that's about it. The, you, know, you know, I think it's almost like it's, it's, a, it's a problem that's too difficult to, to kind of to really get to grips with. And we've never, we've never really wanted to tackle it. There's, a, there's no great political will to go after it. I don't think there's any, any votes to be won by, you know, cruising you know, into, into the vice trade. I, I think it's one of those things that, you know, you can be, people can be reluctant to get involved. I mean, certainly men, it looks like you've got an unhealthy interest in prostitutes if you're suddenly, you know, doing stories about them or if you're volunteering in the guards to be part of a vice unit. You know, it's, it's not necessarily seen as a, as a kind of serious crime but it's like everything you know like there's definitely one of the Romanian gangs are involved in bank robberies you know they're they're involved in 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 drugs you know there are some very serious there's some very serious criminal outfits that you know prostitution is a sideline because it's just it's a you know it just keeps the cash rolling in when the days are quiet and sometimes gives the lads something to do when they have a, you know, a couple of hours downtime. Mm-hmm. Like to be very, to be very blunt about it. I mean, we saw that pattern in the past where there was a small town in a border county, and I was wondering, like, why is there fifteen women, like, you know, you know, advertising sex for sale in this small border town? And then it turns out, then there was a big criminal gang had been based up there, a big, you know, originally from Finglas, where were up there. They had their their grow houses, so. I mean, it, it, in, a, in a way, it kind of goes to some extent uh, part and parcel with the wider criminality. And then there is an underlying kind of, there is an underlying trade. I think it's, you know, one in 20 men, you know, are supposed to have used the prostitute in Ireland at some point in their lives. So, you know, and, and the, the regular users will, you know, it's maybe twice a year. This is all. Oh, God, you know, one in 20. So, I hope that statistic is wrong. Well, I, look, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I might have quoted it's wrong. Way but too it's, many men. It's. It, it, well, it's five percent. So I mean, it, you know, it's in a way, it's it's not entirely mainstream, but it's enough mm. to to keep it going. Um, and you know, there's enough money there, and it's cash. So it's it, there's so many reasons like to to get involved. You know, if you're into your illicit, you know, cash flows, here, here's a good one. Like you know. And finally, Eamon, I noticed that when you did doorstep Desmond, the husband of Edith Engogazi, who's currently serving her five years in prison or her sixty-eight months, um. He said to you, I think his overall answer to you basically on questioning him about whether he'd, you know, what he had to say about it was, I am a Christian. Yeah, well, there was, I mean, his overall answer was this, I don't really know what happened. Like he was absolutely hadn't a clue. So here he is living in the small terrace house with his wife who's running a, you know, a sex for sale operation and he had no idea. So, you know, his, his wife must be pretty good at keeping things on the QT. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, look, I mean, he, he, he was, he, like his initial, like kind of, when I asked him about the case, he, he was kind of vague, but generally he was saying, like, so he was doing the thing of replying my, to my questions with questions. Uh, so, Ed, can anyone now go into a Garda station and say you're the victim of a voodoo curse and, and they get jailed? But I mean, he was deliberately missing the point there. That wasn't what his wife, you know, had been convicted of. Uh, you know, so he, he, was trying to, he was trying to suggest that if somebody, you know, you know it, it was making this up, that you can get someone convicted, which, you know, really was deliberately, I think, missing the point. I mean, he was evasive about, you know, his own involvement in crime, which he obviously has. He didn't want to talk about, you know, you know, why he was shot in, in Nigeria. 
uh, you know, and having spoken for 10 minutes was saying, I do, I don't really have much to say about this. I mean, look, he, but he, I mean, he was, he was, he was really, I it was really being self-serving, like, you know, and I asked him, look, do you even believe in voodoo? He goes, no, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in voodoo. And, you know, I just said to him, are you a criminal? Do you, you know, are you a gangster? I think is what I asked him. And he goes, I'm not a criminal. I don't belong in any gang. So, I mean, he, he's very much, you know, he said, look, if I was a gangster, do you think I'd be standing here at the door talking to you and, you know, he says, I'm just a guy trying to trying to make a living. Well, I suppose at the very least, if, if nobody else uh, wants to up the game on this sort of crime, the Sunday world will at least continue to ask questions. So for now, Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.